everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Rock and Roll Research Podcast, where we share the super cool past lives and side gigs of the insights professionals that help you on a day-to-day basis. Uh, my name is Matt Valley, and I'm super excited to welcome my uh, old colleague from GFK, Audra Preluck, to the program today. Hello, Audra. Hey! Hey, Matt. Great to be here. Uh, it's great to have you. It's very great to have you. So Audra is, uh, is an accomplished insights pro uh, when it comes to media, entertainment, and all things digital. Uh, she's currently at Maru Matchbox. Is that right? That's right. Maru Matchbox. And we work together at GFK. Uh, and I have to say that I learned while I was at GFK that Audra can sing. And I don't just mean can sing. I mean really, really sing like the biggest, most beautiful voice I've ever, I've ever heard in person, I think. Um, but it wasn't just me. So I learned along with everybody else in the company at a company offsite uh, for GFK North America in Philadelphia. It was like, whoa, who is that singing? We had a, we had a band that was at the event. And then all of a sudden this huge voice singing uh, New York State of Mind, I believe. Uh, but I will, I don't want to steal your thunder because I, I love the way you tell that story. <laughs> so okay. I'll, I'll let you tell that in a minute. Uh, but uh, what's great about Audra is that when you actually start to peel the onion, uh, you realize that there's so much behind that voice and there are some great stories in the past. If you're a child of the 80s, you may have seen her on TV. There's a Dave Navarro connection from Red Hot Chili Peppers. All sorts of cool stuff. So I <laughs> <laughs> uh, can't wait to talk about that. But uh, first, I would I would love to to talk to you, Audra, about your career in insights. Um, how did you fall into this industry? And uh, you know, what's kind of the story from from there to where you are now? Sure. Um, so do you do you want me to tell the GFK story first? <laughs> I mean, we may, I mean, we may as yeah. well. You teased it already. So right. I feel like we should we should Let's cover off on that. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, as you said, it was this offsite in Philly um, and uh, we were at the, the Reading Terminal. I think that's how it's pronounced. Um, and. Uh, and they had shut it down just for us, and, and it w- was incredible. And they had this live band playing, uh, and uh, they just they sounded great. Anyway, I walked up to the the lead singer, who was also the pianist, during one of their band breaks, and and I said, "Hey, what do you guys have coming up in your next set? It'd be really fun to to sing along." And he's like, "Oh, well, here, take a look at the you know what we have planned." And I was like, hey, do you guys know New York State of Mind? He goes, yeah, we, we do. And I'm like, great. I just happened to know the key that I was singing it in at the time because I was doing some other performances with a band. So I actually knew the key that I was singing it in. And I said, oh, great. Well, can you play it in this key? And, and let's start with, the, you know, the, we'll do the chorus, uh, sorry, the verse and the chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, back into the chorus. Well, he's like, yeah, 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 totally cool. We'll just roll with it. I'm like, okay. So then I went, went over to the the head of marketing who had put together the whole thing, right? So, I mean, her reputation's writing on this. I totally get that, right? So I go to her and I'm like, listen, I'm going to sing with the band in the next set. Are you cool? He's like, do you sing? (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I sing, I sing, I swear. But then she had to go to the CEO and tell him that I'm going to sing. And his response was, does she sing? (laughs) And she's like, I don't know. She tells me that she sings. I'm like, "And, and anyway, Long story short, I go up there and uh, and I and I sing the song and it, it just went so well. I mean, I've never performed with these guys before and I had to, you know, kind of conduct a little bit from the from the mic. But 
uh, it worked out great and it was, it was so much fun. And, and it is kind of like revealing like, Hey, I can do something that you guys didn't know I could do. <laughs> yeah. Just instant superstar. And you know, the year before I did a karaoke duet, I think it was the year before with, with Penny Colton and we did every rose has its thorn by poison. You know, it's kind of a funny thing, but you know, of course afterward we're kind of like, Hey, you know what? That actually sounded pretty good. You know, maybe people, but no. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And then you came along and it yeah, it was that was a good time. That was a good time. What a neat, uh, what a neat offsite. I, I mean, I think that the takeaway, at least for me, with with GFK was how much international exposure I got. Yeah. Um, that you know, and and if I can, you know, stick a pin in, you know, the the one big takeaway from me with, with working at GFK was that international exposure. There were projects that I worked on that had. 40 different inputs from 40 different countries uh, because we had boots on the ground in all of those places. And I had never experienced that before in any other part of my insights career. Um, so that was, that was pretty special. Yeah. I, I loved that part of uh, GFK as well. So how did you get into insights? What's the story there? Well, I, I really, I really grew up I, maybe I should even say I was born into media. Uh, and uh, my father was um, uh, spent more than 30 years at Turner Broadcasting. Uh, he spent his entire career there. And so I grew up there, um, literally grew up there. Uh, and so from, you know, starting from the, I'm just thinking like 1980, literally, I mean, I'm trying to like recap 40 plus years of experience in this industry and different things that I got to do along the way that, that at the time, like looking back at the time, it was such a special environment. And I don't think even people there, I mean, I'm sure people there realized it was special at the time, but oh my God, you know? Um, so, uh, just, just Ted, you know, being the visionary that he was and, uh, you know, and saying, I'm going to create CNN and now I'm going to create, a, you know, a cartoon network and now I'm going to create TNT and it was just, and TCM and buying libraries, right? And, and all of these things created opportunities, especially for my dad who went from ad sales to the general manager of TBS um, in the late 80s to being, when he finished his career, he was the uh, president of worldwide programming and acquisitions for all of the Turner Entertainment Networks. Wow. Um, so that that kind of that experience that's you know <laughs> incredible, right? And and I don't even and I'm just trying to think. You can count maybe on one hand the people now that have that type of experience being with one company for their entire career doing all of these different things, right? Yeah, so, such a rarity now. A rarity. Um, so as a result of being in that environment, there were things that I got to do. Um, and things that I got asked to do. Um, and I was also a performer really early on in Atlanta. The, um, one of the things that I, I could mention is that the Atlanta Journal-Constitution tapped me as a musical protege in like 1981 or two. I don't even remember, but it, they, had, they had identified a bunch of kids in the Atlanta area who were um, gifted in certain areas. Right. Uh, and, and as a result of being tapped for that, um, my, my parents got a call from, uh, the, the gentleman who was the head of programming for TBS at the time. Okay. And they were interested in, uh, getting a, uh, a little kids news segment started, but they didn't, they didn't really know what it was going to be. And they didn't really have a kid yet to host it. And they weren't really sure, but they wanted me to come in 
and sit in front of a teleprompter and read. And I was, I was eight. <laughs> And I think about that now because my younger son is eight and a half. um, And I, and I can totally see how a lot of people were like, no way. (laughs) Like there's just no way it's going to work. But, um, but long and the short, uh, you know, they, that's when they decided to create kids beat. And from 1982 uh, to 1987. uh, So second grade through seventh grade, I was on TV every single day uh, through, through TBS. Uh, we, we pre-taped, uh, well, basically every Monday afternoon, I was at Turner. I was in the, like, if you've ever visited the Techwood campus, everyone knows the mansion. It's that, you know, now it's dwarfed by all the other buildings on the Techwood campus. But, um, but yeah, every Monday afternoon, I was in the mansion in Studio A pre-taping all of the Kids Beat episodes for that week. Um, and that is really what started my curiosity for a lot of things, right? I think at the, at the core of insights is curiosity. And I really thought for a time that I was going to end up being a journalist um, because I got to spend so much time in the CNN library um, finding B-roll for stories. Um, and, and, and it was just that sense of curiosity, I think, that, that led me initially down this path. Um, but, but basically coming out of kids beat, they let me start, they, they let me, um, write. So I started producing episodes of kids beat once I was no longer on the show. And then when I was, yeah, that was, that was a lot of fun, especially when they let me do theme weeks and I was a space kid, you know, I was totally into space camp and I like your shirt, by the way, let me call that out. Oh yeah. Um, yeah, that's right. I love, it. I love it. Um, but yeah, I went to space camp and I went to space Academy and I was, I just love that stuff. And, and at the same time, they let me write theme weeks for kids beat. So I was doing stuff on the space shuttle and, uh, doing stuff on, yeah, it was amazing. All those different missions and when they were happening, um, and then that led to working for the public affairs division at Turner. Um, and that's what I got to do in high school during the summers and whatever, and help produce PSAs, um, help produce segments for their, um, for their local public affairs show called Between the Lines. Um, and so I got to tell kid-centric stories, but, you know, from my own, right, teenage POV, right? Um, and then finally college, right? So now I came out to LA, I'm at USC, I was a cinema television production major. So now like this stuff's serious, right? I, mean, now yeah. I, I was surrounded by people um, that were like, I'm going to be the next Disney, I'm going to be the next, you know, Warner Brothers, you know, I mean, it was amazing the people that I got to work with and learn with and become friends with. Um, at USC. And that's when I dove into TV production. I just, I loved it. And sitcoms were my bread and butter. Um, And so an insights thing that happened was after I graduated, the very first sitcom I worked on was the failed Andrew Dice Clay sitcom for UPN called Kiss. I loved that show. (laughs) And I can say that I knew Rosa Blasi before anybody else knew Rosa Blasi. Uh, But it was, oh my God, what a show. Um, And I was an assistant to the line producer. He was the exec producer, but he was a non-creative producer. He was a line producer and I was his assistant. And for whatever reason, I was the assistant tapped with looking at the Nielsen overnights. 
Oh. <laughs> How'd we do? How'd we do yeah. with the overnights, right? And it would come off of a fax machine. Yes, kids, we had fax machines. Uh, but we, it came off of a fax machine, right? Every whatever it was Wednesday morning, the, you know, the day after we aired. Um, and it was my job to take a look and let the producers know and the writing staff which markets uh, we were performing in and, and, how, and, and how we were trending from week to week. And, and, and it, was, it was really, it was something else. <laughs> was, you, you must have gotten good at delivering bad news. <laughs> oh, yeah, well... <laughs> You know, you know how it goes. You, you you have to you have to learn pretty early on how to tell somebody their baby's ugly in this business. <laughs> um, right. So it's just, uh, but that that really wasn't it. Um, I think the bottom line was that we were on UPN. I, I don't think really the expectations were all that high, to be honest. Um, but but the bottom line is that uh, coming out of um, coming out of that experience. I knew that there were other things that I could do. So working in TV production, I got to, I got to jump around a little bit, right? So when, when hits got canceled, um, then I got to work at a talent agency. And then I got to work um, for John Wells Productions during a pilot season, which was kind of amazing. It was the pilot season that the West Wing script came in. So it's like you just, there are these moments in time where you're just like, oh my God this is going to be an amazing show. Now I wasn't, I didn't stay there long enough because it was a part-time gig. Right. But, mm-hmm. um, but to, to know that I was there when the script came in is, you know, is pretty special. Yeah. But there, there were two shows that I did get to work on um, that I can't wait to write about in my memoirs. <laughs> so the, the first one is mad about you. Oh, you and did. I worked on the last season of that show. I was a writer's assistant mm-hmm. uh, and it was incredible. Uh, I honed my typing skills like nobody's business because I was a basically a court reporter. Right. So I'm in the writer's room every day for hours at a time. And I'm just, you know, furiously typing every single thing I hear, uh, you know, in the room. And sometimes there were, you know, 10, 11 people in there pitching ideas. Uh, and it was incredible. And Paul and Helen were both co-executive producers that year. We had 18 writers on the staff. We had four writer's assistants. Um, the, the other three writer's assistants all went on to become executive producers of their own right. Wow. And so it's incredible following their careers. Uh, and I just, I just love that. Uh, and, and again, the, you know, the curiosity, the, 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 um, the asking questions and and I had no desire to be a writer, which actually was an advantage for me <laughs> because <laughs> I was the only one not kissing people's asses during that entire year, right? Whereas my whereas the other three writers assistants were like, oh my God, we gotta be baby writers, we gotta get an agent, we gotta get represented, you know, and all that stuff. And that was zero pressure for me in that in that way. Um, and coming out of that uh, that final season, I got to jump over to the King of Queens. Uh, and I was on that show for its second season. And in that uh, that show, I was the assistant to one of the executive producers uh, who uh, was, again, not a creative producer. He was actually the manager for uh, for Kevin James and Joe Rogan and Gary Valentine and these really incredibly talented comedian actors, right? right. Um, and even though I was part of the staff, the show staff, Really, my responsibility was to help with the personal representation um, and, and help them book gigs and, and book weekends of shows. And so, it was wild that, it, that, that experience being on that side of the production. 
Um, yeah. And so, you know, those, those two shows definitely stand out. And there, there are others that, um, other shows that I worked on that were also interesting, but no need to mention here. I will mention the last show I worked on, which was really cool. And it was Arliss with Robert Wool. Okay. And so that was in uh, 2001. Mm -hmm. And the reason I want to mention that is because um, at that point, I was ready for a 401k and some medical benefits. (laughs) (laughs) I know the feeling. (laughs) It was, it was time for me to find, it was time for me to find a a, a salary gig, you know, working in TV production was a great way to spend my twenties. But it was, it was time. Uh, And I was given an opportunity that summer uh, to interview for uh, the research department coordinator slash junior analyst position at 20th Television. May it rest in peace. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and that is what officially got me into Insights full time. So I was taking Nielsen ratings and writing sales pitches for Buffy and, <laughs> uh, and Cops. And um, and uh, uh, Malcolm in the Middle and uh, what else? Um, Texas Justice, if anybody remembers that daytime court show. Yep. Uh, but, you know, I was writing, obviously, you know, using Nielsen ratings to tell a story. And right. that was awesome. Uh, loved it. Now, here's what here's the other thing that happened. You know, I'm writing these these pitches, these decks. Mm-hmm. And I'm giving them, passing them off to the salesperson who then goes and takes the meetings and, you know, potentially closes the business. Well, I'm hearing about all the fun they're having. And yeah. I'm like, well, I, I want to do that. <laughs> I want to <laughs> do what they're doing. And, uh, and, and that is when I really fought hard uh, to go into sales and, okay. and really just dive right in into business development. And that's when the head of sales there and the West Coast head of sales gave me some phoner markets to start calling on, like Jonesboro, <laughs> Arkansas, and you know some other places that they weren't going to be traveling to. And I was able to sell in. And again, via fax machine, you got to get that... <laughs> Got to get that signed contract via it's fax. Old school, old school. Oh yeah, totally old school. I remember Amazing. waiting for faxes to come in. Yeah, that was my <laughs> first. My first signed deal was from the ABC affiliate in Jonesboro, Arkansas, where I was able to sell in the practice on Sunday nights after their local news, and it was a straight barter deal for two years. But let me tell you, I paraded that piece of paper around. <laughs> I paraded that thing around like it was the second coming uh, and, and realized that I, I got bit by the bug, you know, yeah. at that point and, and knew that this was definitely the thing for me. And, um, I, I, and I've spent, I spent a great amount of time, um, doing that at Fox and then jumping over to Warner brothers and, and doing it for them on the West coast as an account executive, Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it was after Warner Brothers that I officially jumped to the vendor side and the rest is history. So I haven't. Uh, so I so I've been doing primary research um, and, you know, understanding those attitudes and perceptions that people have toward content, toward the platform, toward a service, toward a network, you know, and it all comes and it all always comes back to my curiosity again. Mm-hmm. Right. Understanding why do you care? Why is this important? But then also. Um, I'm obsessed with the life cycle of a piece of content. 
which has also changed so much in the past oh, few years, right? And it's incredible. So that, that has really guided, that's been my North Star, right, is, is, uh, is the content and the life cycle that it has and, and how a show like MASH can continue to live on as an evergreen or a show like Seinfeld, which is in like its sixth cycle or something crazy, like or tenth cycle, I don't even know anymore. Um, but it's amazing how some of these shows uh, continue to live on. Yeah, no, and uh, that's a great segue to your Audra Lee character on Kids Beat, uh, because that had come up, come back around uh, not not too long ago. Is that right? Great, great story there. So, to, oh my God, yeah, so funny. You know, I I knew that Kids Beat was nationally televised. So even as a little girl, I knew that TBS was broadcast. Mm-hmm. You know, all over the U.S. Um, the reason I knew that was because I had family that lived in Houston. And so when I would travel to Houston and I would go places like Astro World or <laughs> um, or an Astros game or whatever with family or what I, you know, people would ask me, oh, are you Audra Lee from Kids Beat? And I'm like, yeah, I am. And they're like, wow, can I have your autograph? Right. So, it, I, you know, I'm 9, 10, 11 years old. Right. It was it was bizarre. But I got it. I understood, right? And then, and in Atlanta, I was—I don't even know how to classify myself. Kind of like a local celebrity type, you know. It's like I got to, you know, be in parades, and I got to, uh, you know, wave to people, and you know, have a sign on the side of a, a truck or something, you know. I mean, so I got to do all that kind of stuff, which was pretty fun. Um, and and then fast forward to—I uh, guess it was. I went back and looked at my email in advance of this because I knew we were going to be talking about it, right. um, but it was late 2017. Okay. So I mean, it's been a minute, you know, and, what and is that? Another 40 years. I mean, what? Yeah. Right. Um, and, and I, I check a message. I, I go to my Audra Lee fan page because I I've done a whole bunch of music stuff in the meantime. Um, but I go to my Audra Lee fan page really just for shits and giggles. Um, and I see that there's a message in there from Dave Navarro. Now I'm like, what? D- Dave Navarro? Like, what? What's, what is this? And he basically says, if this is Audra Lee from Kids Beat, I'm a huge fan and I really want you to be on my podcast. <laughs> I mean, I, I like, what? <laughs> okay. So, uh, of course, I write him back. And I don't even know how long that message had been sitting there, quite frankly. I can't remember. Uh, but he wrote me back within 30 seconds of me sending him a note. I was like, here's my personal email. Feel free to reach out. Happy to schedule something. He didn't know where I lived. Right. He was like, I'd love for you to be on the podcast. He thought I'd be calling in. He did the pot. He's been doing, he had been doing the dark matter podcast live in LA. He didn't know I lived here. He didn't know I lived in LA. So when I, when I got back, when I got in touch with him, like through personal email and he, and he was like, well, I've, I got to have you on. I'm like, well, I'm in LA. And he goes, oh! you know, it's like, it was just crazy for all this to happen. And then he put me in touch with his producer and, and, and the rest is history there. But being on his podcast was a riot. Um, and my husband came with me and a, and a, a mutual friend of ours came, tagged along. Um, and it was just a riot because he wanted to hear all about kids beat every yeah. single story every single story i could come up with everything i could remember i came in with pages of notes <laughs> and, things to, <laughs> and things to share um and we we had a we had a really good time 
you know, reminiscing and talking about it. And it just goes to show that I think there's so many people who remember watching the Brady Bunch and the Three Stooges on TBS uh, in the 1980s, either in the morning before they went to school or if, you know, we were all latchkey kids, right? I mean, we would all come home and uh, we'd all come home in the afternoon and turn turn it on and watch that, you know, watch that show. So I am very well aware of, of how many people, let's say, aged, you know, 45 to 55 or 45 to 60 who may have watched every day. Yeah. Uh, and it, it's wild. It is wild. Yeah. Nostalgia is a powerful thing for sure. So I just love that story. And it's it's just perfect for the Rock and Roll Research podcast, of course, because Dave Navarro, for, for those who don't know, he played in the Red Hot Chili Peppers and then became... Uh, just kind of an uber celebrity in its own right. So, oh yeah, absolutely. And never in a million years did I ever think I would be, you know, on a podcast with him, taking pictures with him. That he would be like, I really need to know you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now, so you, you, you've alluded to some of this, but uh, you know, having grown up in that media space and then finding your way into insights mm-hmm. and sales. Uh, are there any lessons that you draw from your your childhood on Kids Beat and having media around you that that you use in your day to day? Absolutely, um, I think listening is key. That's mm-hmm. really just such a cornerstone. Like when you think about making music, um, especially. I mean, I spent how many years singing in chorus and doing show choir and uh, and even marching band. You know, things that are you know. You have to listen to the other people. Like if you can't hear, right, so figuratively, right, if you can't hear the people around you that are singing, you're too loud. Yeah. And, I, and I think that that is something that's so important um, to apply uh, to every conversation that I have uh, with insights professionals mm-hmm. uh, is how are you listening to your consumers, your viewers, your subscribers, Um you know, again, I said this before, but it's, it's so true. It's like, why do they care? What's motivating them? Um, you know, how are they evangelizing you? Yeah. What, and what, what can you learn from that? Um, so that's, that's definitely a huge lesson that I learned, uh, that I learned early on that you, you can't just be a bull in a China shop and, and, and assume everyone's just going to go right along with whatever you're saying that, that listening is such a huge component. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, but there there still are quite a few bulls uh, running around in China shops uh, to this day, so it's great to hear. Um, so, so thinking then about the future of Insights, I mean, you've kind of chosen this as your career, and I'm sure you've thought a little bit about uh, what it's got in store for us. Any thoughts there? You know, uh, you know coming into this, um, I was at first I was like, oh, Insights are simple, Insights are easy, you know, just but, you know, and it's so it's gotten a lot more complicated. Let's let's mm-hmm. face it. Um, but I still think that insights and, and I and I'm looking at it through the lens of primary research. Right. So it's the, the survey driven, not the measurement driven, because I think that's a that's a whole nother Oprah. <laughs> I think just talking <laughs> about measurement. Right. But if we talk about primary research specifically, I think it's, you know, they are going to continue to be that mix of method and a little magic. I think there's a little bit of both when it comes to insights these days. Um, And we have to meet consumers where they are and we, and, and pose questions that are interesting 
for them to answer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and not, not I, I, I'm so frustrated by surveys that are more than 15 minutes long. Yeah. I just, it's, it's just not necessary anymore. Um, and, and driving that home um, to teams of people and sometimes executives that have been in their roles for too long, it's so hard to drive the point home. And again, it's about listening. You know, what do these people want? Well, they don't want a 20 minute survey. That's what they don't want. I can tell you that. Um, and, and, and Maru as a company, I, we have worked to close that, that say do gap for so long. And it's, and it's, and it's easy. This is where the, this is easy about insights. It's easy to ask about how people are thinking. What are you thinking about? Or it's easy to ask them, how are you behaving? What did you do today? But it's much harder to ask, how are you feeling? Right. And that's, and that's why we've incorporated system one techniques, right? Getting that, that gut reaction to something that subconscious, you know, see an image, you know, click, click on agree, disagree right away or drag and drop or make a collage, you know, do something with visual semiotics that allows, that allows us to use pictures to describe how we feel about it. What's that emotional connection that we have with something? Because it's so hard for us to describe verbally how we feel about it, right? Because I don't know about you, but when I go to a restaurant, one of these days I'll go to a restaurant again, by the way. (laughs) Um, That'll be nice. (laughs) Right, pre-COVID, you go to a restaurant, you receive that entree or whatever it is, you take a picture of it and post it. You don't say, oh, I'm at this restaurant, I'm eating this really delicious meal. You know, it's, you're, you're posting a picture. It's, it's so natural for us now to speak in that way and describe how we feel in that way. And, and so that's, uh, I, think, I think media companies specifically need to spend more time thinking about how their viewers and their subscribers are feeling. Yeah, um, I really like that example too, because you, you mentioned meeting meeting um, respondents or consumers where they are. And that's a great example of it, right? Oh, for uh, sure. You don't have to ask anything when you, when you know what they're posting, you can really get a sense for, uh, for what matters and how they're feeling in that moment. So that's, I think that's a great example. Absolutely. And, yeah. and one other thing that I want to mention is specifically about COVID, right? So, um, I, you know, it matters that COVID has accelerated the pace of change. Right. Uh, to the, especially when it comes to adoption of streaming services and AVOD. Um, and, 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 and so another point, just like the future of insights, I think five years ago, you could, you could do a, a segmentation study, you know, a traditional behavioral attitudinal segmentation, maybe five years ago, and it could live on for like two years. Yep. You know, I would say that that's pretty legit. Right. And if you did a segmentation last year, you may as well rip it up and throw it out. And especially exactly. if you did something last fall or in the winter and had the insights delivered in January, February, it's old news, really old news, right? Like it has just accelerated the pace of change so much. Like you, you just have to, you know, constantly be willing to shift and move and think differently if you are that, if you're a media brand. Right. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Uh, that's great, great stuff for people to be thinking about right now. So I appreciate that. So 
Uh, this has been a great conversation, Audra. I really appreciate it. Uh, if you've seen one of these podcasts already, which you might have, you know what I like to ask last. And being that you're you're still a performing artist under the name Audra Lee, I believe. And yep, Audra uh, Lee. You can look me up on iTunes. My album from 2012 that was number one on my bucket list for a long time, but I finally self-produced an album, and it's there. Audra Lee. Yeah, that's great. Uh, and maybe I'll I'll put a link there on the YouTube as well, so people can Be see awesome. that, uh, so they can find it. Well. Uh, so you're stranded on a desert island. Um, besides Slayer, what are the three albums that you would want with you for the end of time? Yeah, with me for the, for the end of time. I'm I think. not biased. I'm not biased. So, well, we're going to start with the very one of the very first albums uh, that I had on CD. Uh, my one of my not we won't, let's not talk about vinyl for a second because that's a whole nother Megillah. Uh, <laughs> but, but we'll talk about one of my very first CDs, which was the Huey Lewis and the News album four. Oh, wow. OK. And it is Old such school. a good one. And I think the reason is because of my love of acapella. And they've got that song naturally on that album, as well as some other, you know, great hits. You know, so I think some people would say, well, what about sports? How do you forget that album? It went double, triple platinum or whatever, you know, and, and it's a great album. But uh, for me, it's that acapella uh, song that that does it for me and so fun to harmonize with. And anyway, so that's number one. Cool. Um, right. Number two, number two is going to be Sting, uh, and it's the album uh, Symphonicities. So I love, I love so many of his albums from the '90s, uh, and I was looking back at you know what they were titled and and where the songs were. But Symphonicities, what he did was you know re-recorded so many of his hit songs, but with a full symphony orchestra, and it just the depth. Um, of the of the instrumentation that happened as a result of that, just it has made it one of my favorite albums. Uh, yeah, so it's yeah. like songs you know, but in a slightly different way than how you originally heard the radio edit. Right, right, interesting, and and always that. with always with world class musicians. Okay. Oh yeah, I mean All he's right. incredible, and I've seen him in concert a couple times too. Um, and, uh, and last but not least, and they, they would be number one, but I wanted to mention Huey Lewis first, but, um, my all time favorite band in the world are the Indigo Girls. And oh, yes. I know that they have come up before in this podcast. And, um, as a girl who grew up born and raised in Atlanta, uh, that's where they're from. And, uh, I, I have been to more than 20 concerts, um, and they're, they're just incredible musicians and writers and performers. And um, the, the two albums in particular, this is where I literally cannot pick between babies. Like it's literally, <laughs> literally impossible. But there are two albums that are tied for number one in my book. The first is called Rites of Passage. Mm -hmm. And then the second one is Swamp Ophelia. And those are to, they were just transformative albums for me that came out when I was in uh, high school and uh, go, and I think on my way to college or my freshman year of college is when the second one came out. I think one came out in 92 and the other came out in 94. So it's like, you know, um, but yeah, just so incredible and really such an influence in my own original music and songwriting as well. Um, and there's no question that one of my original songs that I wrote absolutely had Indigo Girls written all over it. Cool, cool. Well, it's a, it's a great choice. 
Uh, I can tell you that uh, I will stop by your island, pay you a visit, listen to a couple <laughs> records. It's all right. So uh, <laughs> very good stuff. Um, I like the Indigo Girls as well. And this conversation has, has brought me closer to fine, if I, yes. if I may. <laughs> Absolutely. Right. Terrible. Terrible. Um, all right. So thanks so much, Audra. This has been a really great conversation. Lots of great thoughts uh, about market research, where it's headed, and such cool stories. So I hope people check out Kids Beat, uh, and especially your, your new stuff, which is really, really good stuff. So, <laughs> Thank you for um, inviting me to this. It was so much fun to reminisce and, and talk through some really cool stuff. Yeah, always a pleasure. So rock and roll, Audra, and I'm sure we'll be talking soon. Take care. Bye. <laughs>